0: Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review Podcast.
1: My name is David Erie. I'm the Chief Technology Officer of the Virginia Innovation Partnership Corporation. Our guest today is Jakob Weinstein, Chief Scientist of Quantum Technologies at the MITRE Corporation, a major research organization that conducts and supports research from government and industry on topics important to national security and stability. So Jakob, I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. I see from your bio, you fairly recently assumed the role of Chief Scientist of Quantum Technologies. Maybe you could give us a brief introduction and personal background.
0: Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been at the MITRE Corporation now for about 18 years. Before that, I was a postdoc at the Naval Research Lab in Washington, DC. And I got my graduate degree at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Nuclear Sciences and Engineering. In my role now as Chief Scientist of Quantum Technologies at MITRE, we're surveying quantum technologies as a whole and being able to bring the latest and greatest to our government sponsors and working with the entire quantum ecosystem, academia, industry, national labs, government, in order to really work in the public interest to make the world a safer place, as is MITRE's motto.
1: Maybe you could provide a little more detail about MITRE's mission and role and how that works with the U.S. research community and how that supports R&D in this pretty exciting space.
0: MITRE is a not for profit corporation that works mainly and almost exclusively for the federal government. In that role, MITRE runs about six FFRDCs, which are federally funded research and development centers. And a way to think about what that is, it's almost like a little company that's set up by the government for the government. So MITRE runs FFRDCs, for example, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, and so on and so forth. And in this way, MITRE can really serve the large breadth of of the American federal government and bring academia and industry to bear for our sponsors.
1: We have a sophisticated audience, but only a few of us are Mm. nuclear physicists. I'm not. Can you give us a simplified explanation of the Mm. basics of quantum? What are the top two or three things that make quantum physics different from those things that Newton taught us or Einstein taught us? What what kind of things are
0: different? Perhaps the way to think about it is that the way things act when they're very small, and by things I mean photons, which are particles of light, or neutrons or electrons, is different than the way we see things act in the regular, what we would call the real world. And so as opposed to like a table or a chair, if you had an electron, for example, the electron can be in multiple states At the same time, it can be in multiple places at the same time. It's a little bit hard to wrap your head around, and I'm not sure anybody—certainly not myself—sees this intuitively. But this is what we call quantum superposition, and that's the ability for a quantum system to be in multiple states at the same time. If you had a quantum coin, then the coin would be able to be both heads and tails at the same time. And what's important here is to realize that this is not a probabilistic. It might be heads, it might be tails. We're not sure. This quantum coin is actually heads and tails at the same time. And if you were to expand on that and think about it a little bit more, if you had like multiple ones of these quantum coins, they can be in all sorts of different combinations all at the same time in terms of heads and tails. And so you have inherent in quantum mechanics, this massive parallelism that could be helpful, for example, for computation. So quantum superposition is certainly one of the fundamental phenomenon of quantum mechanics that is helpful for quantum technologies. The other big one is called entanglement, and that's the ability for quantum systems to be more correlated, more together than conventional systems can be, and that allows for all sorts of interesting quantum communication techniques and also is important for quantum computation. Mm-hmm. Those are the phenomenon that we point to that makes quantum technology special and makes them different than what we would expect from our conventional or what we call classical technologies.:
1: How do you bring some of those two and an sort of related phenomena into mm-hmm. actually start to think about computing problem of
0: interest? If you don't mind, it, let me take a step back. I'd really appreciate if your listeners can have a broad vision of what we, and by we, I mean humanity, is trying to do within this effort of quantum. If you go back 200 years, 300 years, and you think about something like electricity, there were some crazy, wild-eyed scientists who were like started talking about this thing called electricity and how we're going to be able to like control lightning or like put lightning in a bottle and use it for ourselves. And probably the rest of the world thought like, what the heck are they talking about? But obviously, over the generations, humanity has been able to learn how to control electricity. And now we couldn't even imagine life without electricity. Our lights, our computers, everything runs on electricity. And there's no question that the people who started first thinking about electricity, they had no idea what the applications were. How could they possibly imagine that electricity would one day lead to a world where people can talk to each other in seconds from around the globe? And so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take these new quantum phenomena They're not new. They've been known now for more than 100 years. We as in humanity have never been able to harness these phenomena for our use, be able to exploit them to make life better for all of humanity. That's what we're trying to do. Now, are we going to be successful? We don't know. Maybe. We hope so. Are these phenomena of quantum mechanics going to be the next electricity? Maybe or maybe they're the next fusion where we really don't have great success. That remains to be seen. But assuming that we can harness these phenomenon for the betterment of humanity, then we could start talking about some of these technologies like quantum computing. And if we had a quantum computer, again, the quantum computer now based on superposition, being able to exploit that massive parallelism that's inherent in quantum superposition, there are certain problems that could be done more efficiently than can be done currently on regular conventional computers. So the first application of that, which was discovered in 1994 by a mathematician named Peter Shor, was the fact that a quantum computer, if it ever reached sufficient maturity, could break RSA. What that means is it can break current encryption codes. In general, you can send your credit card number over the internet without anybody stealing it because you can encrypt that number in a code that can't be broken easily by conventional computers. But that very protocol that you use to encrypt can be broken efficiently by a quantum computer. More recently, there have been a number of like positive aspects realized for quantum computers. So, for example, a quantum computer can more finely simulate materials or pharmaceuticals. Because in the final truth, as far as we as humanity know, the real world is actually based on quantum mechanics. That is how the universe, as far as we know, runs. If we're trying to design materials or we're trying to design pharmaceuticals, we want to know how they work at their most base level. And the way to do that is to understand quantum mechanics. And we might try to simulate these things on our conventional. Computers, and we've done an amazing job of being able to do that. But if we can actually simulate them on their most basic level using a quantum computer, that would revolutionize these areas. I think there's a lot of devil in the details here, but I do want to warn that a quantum computer is not a magical system. It does follow you know, very specific mathematics and physics. And so while we do know of different swaths of problems that can be tackled more efficiently by a quantum computer than a conventional one, I don't want people to think that this is some sort of magical system that you can do whatever you want.
1: As I've spoken to some folks in the field, one of the things they talk about is that it's likely that software applications, if you will, will probably be some sort of hybrid combination that runs partially on classical computers, partially on mm-hmm. quantum computers, so that each in the full system each could do the things that they're mm-hmm. best suited toward.
0: That is certainly the path that things are going down to this point. Maybe there is a point in the far distant future where things become more of the quantum computer, and you to kind of retire the conventional computer. I'm not sure that will ever happen, but I do also want to emphasize the fact that we as in people, we're inherently quantum because everything is inherently quantum, but we don't like straightforwardly interact with quantum systems. We always need to use something. We need to use something like a laser or something similar to that to actually interact with quantum systems. And those lasers and the like are controlled by conventional computers. But there's also a question of like what's useful. There has not been a clear demonstration where a quantum computer can do something practical, that is currently impossible for a conventional computer. One of the next big milestones would be for a quantum computer to clearly demonstrate the ability to do something that's effectively impossible for a conventional computer where that something is actually practical and something that can be helpful for humans.
1: So what do you think are some of the Mm -hmm. leading candidates and what kind of applications do you think might be first up in that Mm -hmm. sort of demonstration?
0: A lot of people have pointed to optimization routines or types of machine learning as a first practical realization. And the reason being, for an optimization routine, you don't necessarily need to get the best answer. We'd love to get the best answer, but sometimes it's more important to get a really good answer. I'm honestly not totally convinced that that's the way to go due to the way errors operate, but that again is arguable. I like pointing more towards the simulations, simulating a material, simulating a pharmaceutical, as a, let's say, nearer term application of quantum computers. But again, this is a really, really hard problem. Quantum yeah. computing as a whole is very difficult from a physics perspective, from an engineering perspective.
1: Let's- turn a little bit I looked at some of your research and, and so mm-hmm. forth. Uh, you talk about the challenging problems. I see one paper a little bit older now, but the fidelity of an encoded logical zero. Can you maintain a bit in a zero state and trust that it's actually a zero? Can you sure. talk a little bit about some of these challenging problems and mm-hmm. the research and how, how people are thinking about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. A little mathematical, so you'll forgive me for being a theoretical physicist here, but the overarching reason as to why it's so difficult to build some of these quantum technologies is a phenomenon called decoherence. The reason we don't see superpositions in our everyday life and the reason why chairs and tables are not entangled is because the environment degrades the quantumness of a system. I realize that that's kind of like a wishy-washy terminology there that I just used, but the environment means everything else. Air molecules, heat, photons, that's all considered an environment. And that everything interacts with your quantum system whether you like it or not. And that phenomenon is called decoherence. And that causes the quantum system to not behave quantumly anymore and start behaving classically or the way we normally associate with things being able to behave. So the bane of quantum technologies is decoherence. And the goal of the person trying to construct and design a quantum computer, for example, is to protect your system from decoherence. How do you do that? Well, you might make things very, very cold, close to absolute zero. You might protect things by putting them in really strong magnetic fields. So that's what you need to do. But it's assumed that there will always be noise. Your system will never be perfect. You'll never be able to isolate it 100%. And therefore, if you want your quantum computer to work, you're going to have to implement what's called error correction. So error correction is being able to recover from any errors that may occur in your system. And there's an elaborate mathematical framework that allows allows a quantum computer to perform error correction. And that paper on the fidelity of the zero relates to that framework. And it does get very mathematical very, very quickly. But it's not as straightforward as building a conventional computer. Most of our conventional computers don't really have too much error correction in them. But quantum computers are going to need to. And in fact, probably most of what a quantum computer will do will have to be error correction. That's at least the assumption now, unless we can really learn to control our quantum systems much better than we're currently able to.
1: How do you see these kind of technologies affecting our lives? Is that going to allow Amazon to deliver my packages by drone instead of by truck? What kind of things <laughs> do you expect
0: to see? I'm not sure about drone versus truck. I'm not sure that's necessarily a quantum issue, but certainly for Amazon to be able to optimize the route that that drone or that truck takes, that's certainly something that you might see a quantum computer being able to do. There are other quantum technologies, for example, quantum sensors. So, anyone interested in detecting magnetic fields or electric fields, quantum sensors can do that better than conventional sensors would be able to. But really, for the moment, I think over the next few years, we'll start seeing some of these quantum sensors emerge that will either be better performing or have a smaller footprint, allowing you to use that space for something else. This is a really exciting time. And I really hope that your listeners, even if they may not be physicists or mathematicians, can really appreciate the quest that humanity is on, looking at this new area of science and trying to turn that into an engineering discipline and turning it into something that can actually be practical for people.
1: Certainly some of the potential applications for quantum computing, like the cryptology stuff you mentioned, the location near the federal government has a lot of value. As we start thinking about how to develop an industry around this, what kinds of things mm-hmm. do you think are possible? What can we do to help that industry evolve?
0: So MITRE certainly benefited by being in Northern Virginia and in the Commonwealth of Virginia as a whole. Certainly, it puts us close to our sponsors, our sponsors generally being in the greater Washington area. But also, it's a good place to find an educated workforce, which is important, something that certainly MITRE cares about. I personally am a big champion of STEM (laughs) education. We need to do more of that. We need to raise the tide. There are wonderful schools in Northern Virginia. MITRE has a few hundred interns every summer. So we are now in intern season and we certainly take advantage of being in Northern Virginia by getting students from some of the wonderful high schools and universities that are located there.
1: What kind of educational pathways do you think are most valuable there? Is it software? Is it nuclear physics? Is it
0: material science? When I started my PhD 25 years ago, quantum was this thing that a bunch of weird scientists thought about. And I guess I was one of those weird scientists. And so like that's what I thought about. And the only way to even approach the problem was you need to go, you need to get a PhD, you need to research in the area, and that's how you walk through the door. Things have changed a lot. It's certainly having an advanced degree is still valuable, but more and more, we want to get a multidisciplinary picture and from all educational levels at this point. We certainly need physicists. We need mathematicians. We need computer scientists. And they don't necessarily need PhDs. We need people coming with even a bachelor's. We need people coming from engineering. We need people to figure out like how to design some of these systems. We now really need somebody who can design a box to house this and give it the power and everything else that goes into it.
1: How do you see that interplay mm-hmm. between the research community and the great work that goes on mm-hmm. there
0: versus the national security
1: imperatives of the U.S. and our yeah.
0: At a minimum, we certainly want to be able to work with our close allies on problems like this. And fortunately, the United States is signing um, memorandums of understandings in quantum with a number of different nations, certainly Australia and the United Kingdom and Canada, but even beyond that, into the EU. What we're trying to do in the grand scale is going to affect all of humanity. We hope it's going to affect all of humanity. We hope that it will. We have to be careful.
1: I would like to follow up one Mm -hmm. thing that you mentioned that we hadn't really touched on. So you mentioned sure. quantum sensors. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? That mm-hmm. seems like kind of a different thread than sort of the basic quantum computing. So how do those capabilities work?
0: There are a number of different types of quantum sensors that work in different ways. But the idea is, again, to exploit the phenomenon of quantum mechanics in order to perform sensing in a better way. For example, as I mentioned before, detecting magnetic fields, detecting electric fields, even detecting mass, detecting something heavy, those are all modalities that can be improved by using quantum mechanics. And so the basic element there, again, there are a number of different ways to go, but one way is to use the atoms themselves. And so for example, I'll just give one example here, something called nitrogen vacancy centers. So that sounds a little bit odd, but let me me try to explain it. So diamond the regular diamonds that you might have, for example, in a ring, is made up of purely carbon. And we can imagine each one of these carbon atoms is attached to four other carbon atoms in a lattice, right, in this nice design that's repeatable. But what happens is every once in a while, there's a fault. Something goes wrong with the lattice, with the carbons. And instead of a carbon, some other atom will take its place. And so if you ever see diamonds that are colored, like in the U.S. Geological Museum that they have down there in Washington, so you, those colored diamonds occur because they're not pure carbon. There's been some other element that's fit its way into the lattice, and that's what gives it color. So you can imagine, for example, then a nitrogen fitting into the place where a carbon should have been. Now, you now have a nitrogen instead of a carbon. When that happens, nitrogen is a bigger atom than carbon is. It has more electrons, so it's bigger. And so if a nitrogen takes the place of a carbon, it'll actually knock out two carbons because Mm -hmm. it's a bigger atom. And then what happens is that nitrogen has an extra electron because it has five outer electrons rather than carbon, which has four. And that electron just kind of like sits there, but you can use it because an electron can detect charge right? It could affect the magnetic field. Yep. And so you can use that system to build a better magnetometer. And the nice thing about it is that it's effectively diamond. And so diamond is great because it doesn't matter how hot it is. It doesn't matter how cold it is. It doesn't matter how much pressure it is. A diamond will withstand all of that. And so that's one of the types of quantum sensors that we're looking at here at MITRE to use what are called nitrogen vacancy centers, because you have a nitrogen and then a vacancy because another carbon has been knocked out to build a better magnetometer. Being able to detect magnetic fields better.
1: Jacob Weinstein, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Really informative.
0: Thank you, David. It's a pleasure. And I hope to see the growth of quantum technologies and the quantum industry in Virginia.
1: This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.